This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Good afternoon and welcome to Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. And many thanks for the previous hour of the Celtic Folk Show with Anne McAllister. Still no Kevin Healy for Tuesday Home Time, but the rumour is that he will be back on February the 20th, just in time for autumn. Not a bad holiday. But first today, a special person for the program, Dr Helen McHugh, AM, the recipient of the 2023-2024 Jerusalem Al-Quds Peace Prize, awarded by Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network and the Sydney-based Palestine Action Group. Helen was a co-founder of Unionate Abroad Afida, a nurse, refugee and women's rights activist and a 41-year passionate activist, advocate and supporter for Palestine. Then to Ken Davis, International Program Officer with Unionate Abroad Afida, talking about the long history of the aid agency and the situation today for the Palestinian people in the West Bank, Gaza and Lebanon, following on the work of Dr Helen McHugh. Story of two minds, both of whom have devastated the environment of the countries where they make their money, as well as the people's lives. One, Pogra in PNG, which operated for three decades, has been closed for a couple of years, but has now reopened, and the concern is that nothing will change for the people in the area. I'll be speaking with Catherine Cummins, Research Coordinator and Asia-Pacific Program Coordinator with Mining Watch Canada. And the second mine is Panguna on Bougainville. Speaking with long-time peace activist for Bougainville, Vicky John. But she'll be first talking about a young woman artist, Talioi Havini, the daughter of Moses and Marilyn Havini, leaders in the fight for independence, who has won one of the UK's most important contemporary art awards. So that's it for Tuesday Home Time. I hope you can stay around till six. If not, the program is available streaming for a week and then also on podcast, both through 3cr.org.au. And following on from the tribute to Joan Coxage on the program last week, her life will be celebrated at the Melbourne Unitarian Church, Grey Street, East Melbourne, at 2pm on Saturday the 24th of February. I hope you can join us for that celebration. The winner of the 2023-24 Jerusalem Al-Quds Peace Prize is Dr Helen McHugh, AM. The award recognises 41 years of passionate advocacy and support for Palestine through her work with Union Aid Abroad Afida and the Union Movement. But Helen, before that, where did you train and work? that led you to work for the World Health Organisation? And what did you hope to do? 
I was a nurse, and in those days, you know, we did our nurse training in hospitals. So I was a nurse in Canberra Hospital, which in those days was the Royal Canberra Hospital. After that, I married and went overseas, and um, we lived in London for nearly six years, my husband and I. And then we travelled overland from London to Australia, as you could in those days. It took us a year, and it was a life-changing experience for me. When I came back, I did more study, a, a diploma in nurse education, and then a degree in nurse education. And then I did my master's in health personnel education. I moved from Adelaide, and then I did my master's in Sydney at uh, UNSW. Then after that, I got a job with the the Hospital Standards Association. Had uh, just I think that's the right name. I had just uh, established itself, and I became their project and educational officer, training senior. Australian health workers about the hospital standards that were about to be implemented and are now widely used across Australia. Through my work there that I met Fred Katz from the WHO and um, he offered me a job in Mauritius um, to set up a nurse registration. Uh, well, initially he offered me a job in Geneva doing task analysis and I wrote a six-page letter back saying I didn't agree with that. I didn't think it captured what uh, health workers were doing. So I thought, oh, that was it. That's the end of my... I'd always wanted to work for WHO, and I thought, that's the end of, that's the end of my WHO chances. Anyway, he came back and he offered me a consultancy with WHO to do uh, nurse care evaluation, and I went to Pakistan, Jordan and Bahrain, and as a first consultant with WHO and then they offered me a further consultant and I was meant to go to Kuwait and then Israel invaded and I found myself back in Alexandria getting ready to go to the Bekaa Valley in Lebanon. You went to Lebanon, what did you find? I found uh, thousands of Palestinian and Lebanese uh, living up and down the Bekaa Valley uh, so I was seconded from WHO to UNRWA, UNRWA being the relief agency for Palestinians. And they were living in schools, you know, they do now, in bombed-out mosques and whatever facilities they could find. It was fortunate that it was summer, so, you know, it was dry and fairly hot. But my job was to uh, coordinate maternal and child health care services across the Becca Valley for UNRWA. When did you meet Olfat? I stayed in, uh, the, in, in the Becca Valley for quite a few months. And then by then we had a lot of doctors and nurses, UNRWA people, up from the south and fled the war in the south of Lebanon, where Israel, at, at that time, fully occupied. I felt that they, they could do the job better, really, than I could. And so I asked to be relocated to the south of Lebanon. Anyway, I said, well, you have to go back to Alexandria. Then I went back to Alexandria. And um, there's a bit of a story. But anyway, long and short, it was the Sabri Shatila massacre occurred and I resigned from the WHO and from UNRWA. And I went back to Beirut and I went back to Damascus actually first. And then 
um, with the help of the Norwegian People's Relief, I uh, went back to Beirut and was it was suggested that I should meet Olfat and that's when I met her in um, early October 1982. It wasn't actually the Israelis who massacred in those camps, was it? Who were the groups responsible? Uh, they were Christian militia, but they were completely overseen by Israelis. The Israelis were on a hill overlooking um, the Sabashatila camp. They could see everything. They put up flares during the night to facilitate the massacre. They dug a big hole to bury all the people that that uh, the Christian Lebanese forces had slaughtered and um, they threw a large number of people into that hole and and the Lebanese forces went into the hospital and separated the foreigners from the Palestinians. They took the Palestinians down a laneway and killed them, nurses and doctors, and then they told the foreigners to go and they went at, at the outside of the hospital no, not the, well, the hospital, but then at the end of the camp um, to a road where Israel could, Israel forces could see them and then, anyway, the Lebanese told them to take off their white coats and identification. And um, at that moment, of course, the Israelis came screaming down the hill and no doubt saved the foreigners, but took no action to save the Palestinians, of which it's estimated around 3,000 were slaughtered. Helen, how much of this did you witness or how much, how much were you told? Well, I was told all about it because um, Olfat uh, was working in Acker Hospital, which was just across the road from Savishatila camp, and the Lebanese forces went into that hospital as well and killed nurses and doctors. She and a few others were very fortunate because they were on the ground floor they were able to escape through the winter window and over a fence. But other nurses were taken and raped and then killed. And she was just very lucky that she was able to move quickly. Also, when I went back in October, I nursed a number of people. One old man who'd had his throat slit and needed a tracheotomy to breathe. Young people who'd um, been you know, injured another man who'd lost his entire family and another woman who'd been buried underneath all of her family and who was really having a severe psychiatric breakdown as a result of it. So I had a chance to speak to many people who were witness to it. What did you learn about why these people were in these camps? Well, I when I was in the Bekaa Valley and even prior to that, through Egyptian friends, you know, when I was living in Alexandria, I started to learn much more about the Palestinians when I was uh, in the Bekaa Valley. And I heard their story of the seizure of Palestinian land in 1948 and their escape. But I think it was when I was there in 1982 and I was with Olfat and I would go to her her mother's place and her grandmother's place and I would speak with them and they would tell me the story of of their exile and of the situation and I could see for myself the situation in the camp because 
I actually, although I had a bed in the hospital, I spent quite a lot of time in Bourges Operationy Camp with Olfat and her mum family. Mm. And those camps that survived, it was very basic, wasn't it? And it still is. Yeah, it's very basic. It's very basic. You know, small rooms, very crowded, very poor. You know, they've got sanitation facilities, but they're pretty poor. Um, the buildings themselves are close together. There's not much light. There's some attempt by UNRWA for rubbish collection, but in general, it's not very, you know, you know they do what they can. But, um, yes, the situation is they're very impoverished, very impoverished. Yeah, because in Lebanon, unlike in Jordan and in Syria, Palestinians in Lebanon are not allowed to have about 30 different occupations in which they can work. So the jobs that they have are, you know, very low-paid jobs. And so they're really living on the edge uh, in poverty and they rely very greatly on UNRWA for preventative health care but also sort of chronic illness health care like diabetes and um, blood pressure, etc., hypertension. But also they rely on UNRWA for their education. So it's particularly distressing to hear that our government at the bequest of the Israelis who are military, who are known to be liars, have withdrawn aid uh, to UNRWA temporarily. There may well have been some members of UNRWA involved in activities, but the UN should be let to do the investigation and Australia should be standing with countries such as Norway and Ireland and Spain who've got a bit of spine and a bit of moral courage and don't just jump when Israel says jump and, you know, listen to what the IDF has to say. You know, what's happening at the moment is uh, truly uh, shocking and disappointing. No, more than disappointing. Outrageous, actually. How long did you stay there and where did you go next? I stayed in Beirut for about... I left in April, March, April. Yeah, I stayed there for about five months, I suppose, in all. And um, that doesn't include the, the time that I spent in the Becca Valley. So in total, it was about six months with Palestinians. But Alfred and I had been talking about, you know, what to do to stay there because I could have stayed there because I was, I was living off my WHO salary. Anyway, we, we talked about it and decided, and I decided it was better, um, you know, with her guidance, it was better to go home and see if I could set up an organisation that would provide support to the Palestinians. Yeah, Bob Hawke was elected um, Prime Minister in February of um, 83, and, and I decided, well, now I should go home and see what I could do to set up an organisation that would help Palestinians. And um, that's what I did. How difficult was that to do? Well, I did a lot of talking around to different organisations and went to the ACTU international officer and um, at the time and he said he didn't think ACTU would be interested. And I talked to lots of people, but I, I did also go up 
to the Department of Foreign Affairs and put a suggestion to them about trade union and they were very, very positive about it. They thought that was a pretty good idea. So I went to Cliff Dolan eventually. I was advised uh, um, to go and talk to Cliff Dolan and um, Cliff uh, came from... uh, he, He... lived in poverty when he was a child and um, he'd also gone to a Catholic school so he had a strong sense of social justice as a Catholic and so when I went to him and put the idea and said that DFAT were interested as well foreign you know the aid organization was interested the government we had a conversation for about 20 minutes not long so I'd already written a proposal to him. So he went to the next ACT executive and they agreed, yes, we could provide that support to the Palestinians, which was, you know, what our first proposal was. But essentially the proposal was how Australian workers and through the trade union movement could help workers, in particular refugees, gain skills that would help them earn an income and be self-sufficient. That was the aim when we first set the organisation up. How did that aim become reality? Well, firstly, I spent time going around Australia talking to trade unions and getting trade unions on side. And um, we had organisations such as the Teachers Union and the Workers Union and the Banking Union, because in those days there were all those much smaller unions which have now been amalgamated and so we were able to get the teachers for instance supporting a teacher training program we had people helping with administrative training as well so our very first project was actually assisted by nurses themselves because we bought a number of nurses from UNRWA as well as from the Palestinian Red Crescent Society that's the medical arm of the PLO We brought those out to Australia for a six-month course in um, community nurse training. And so we were greatly helped by Australian teachers and nurses during that first major project that we had. And we were greatly helped by Bill Hayden, who, like Cliff, was uh, absolutely on side and felt that we should be doing something for the Palestinians and felt that this humanitarian approach would be good. And so I ended up writing a two-page letter to him and we got $250,000, which of course in today's money is quite a lot of money. It was quite a lot of money then. And so that was the start of our Palestinian support program in 1984. So you got to know a lot more or a number more Palestinians, the ones who are coming to Australia? Yes, yes, they were all nurses, some of whom I had met before, but um, others came from Gaza and from Syria, from Aleppo, because, you know, UNRWA works right across the Middle East region, and Jordan, they came from Jordan as well. So, yes, I got to know them and to understand the different challenges that um, Palestinians faced in refugee camps in different areas. So, for instance, in Jordan... The majority of Palestinians are given citizenship, Palestinian refugees, except those who came from Gaza, I think in 1967. Whereas the Palestinians in Syria are not given citizenship, but they're given 
they can they get healthcare and education and all of those things free, but they do have to go into the military, the Syrian military. And in Lebanon, of course, it's much worse because of their restrictions by the government on what Palestinian refugees in Lebanon can do. So yes, I learned a lot about where people were living in different areas and and how different countries impacted. And in particular, of course, those nurses that came from the West Bank and from Gaza and the difficulties that they faced. Yep. Did Alfred come to Australia as well? She did. She was among the first group of nurses to come, which was good because her English was excellent. We had a couple of weeks of sort of intense English language. Most of the girls, because they'd been educated in UNRWA schools, they had also learned English as well as Arabic. They had um, reasonable English language skills. And um, yes, she was a great ambassador for the Palestinians because she was so articulate and and could speak very well to the media, which which we did. We did quite a lot of media and we had quite a lot of public events as well to educate Australians and especially the union movement about, you know, the plight of the Palestinians. Over those years, Helen, were you also visiting Palestine? Yes, my first visit to Palestine was, I think, at the end of 1985. And I met um, Sami Haddad, Haddad. And we went to Palestine itself to a village called Umul Fahim. And it was there that I learned a lot more about the plight of Palestinians living, who've got Israeli citizenship, living inside Israel. And that village, of course, compared, well, it was a very impoverished village because the Israelis had not really helped um, the Palestinians in Israel very much. And so they they were much poorer. You could see that they were much poorer than other areas of Israel. And then in, I think, a few years after that, um, Sami set up his uh, organisation called Man Development Centre. And Afid has been working with him and that organisation since that time. So we've been working with them for about 35 years, doing a lot of uh, work inside Palestine and in Gaza, yep. And you also took Australians with you on those trips to broaden the education of Australians about the situation for Palestinians. I didn't actually take any people with me on those. AFIDA did organise, we did organise for trade unions and other people to um, undertake study tours. It was a very important part of our work so that we believe that when people talk to the, the refugees and, and you know, other people in other countries and they see the work that Afid is doing, it strengthens their understanding. And um, very often when people come back from those, those study tours, they do engage much more uh, on the Palestinian issue because they can see for themselves, especially when they go, well, both to Lebanon in the refugee camps, but also even just going into going into Palestine and seeing the humiliation and the checkpoints and the poverty and the harassment and hearing the stories of the prisoners, how they're treated and uh, all of the humiliations that Palestinians have to suffer daily. They can see Israel's apartheid 
policy in action and they they begin to understand the issue more clearly. The pride, I would imagine, in this award for you, the Jerusalem Peace Prize, and I should add that this is not the first award that you have received for your support for many groups in society, is clouded by the death of Olfat last year. Ah, uh, yes, uh, yes, it is. Olfat tragically had um, some neurosurgery, brain surgery for a benign tumour, but it was located deep in the brain and and then as a consequence, she never fully recovered from the surgery and she struggled for five months in her brave, courageous way, but finally she passed away in September of last year. So last year was a shocking, very, very deeply distressing and Sad year for me to lose her. She was like my sister. You know, she. We used to talk every Sunday. You know, and we were very grateful for WhatsApp, so we could talk more regularly as time went on. But she and I were very, very close, and she was my mentor. She was my teacher, and she was a very brave, strong, articulate advocate for Palestinians. She really was. In fact, you know, she should be receiving the prize. (laughs) And I'll definitely dedicate it to her because, you know, the work that she's done over decades, not just in Australia, but in Scandinavia and in Europe and in the United States, even meeting with Ban Ki-moon, the former United Nations Secretary General. You know, she was, and in Asia, I mean, she went to Malaysia and other places in Asia. She was a truly great person, Olfat, and uh, her loss is felt deeply by myself and indeed by everybody that knew her, and especially the family, whom, of course, I've kept in touch with all through her illness and passing and even now. Well, just finally, Helen Ornera, you've spoken about it previously on the program, and that was the beginning for you. Now we have the Israelis doing what they've been probably planning on doing or hoping to do for a long time to destroy the organisation. How are you feeling? Well, I really can't tell you on air how I'm feeling, really, but um, with the language I'd like to use, but I'm absolutely furious, furious that, that, you know, Western countries, US, Europe, Australia have just jumped to Israeli military lives. I mean, it is highly possible that there are, you know, there are 2.3 million Palestinians. There are 13,000 employees of UNRWA in Gaza. It's likely that some of those were involved to some extent with what happened. And I'm not condoning that. But Israel for years has done its best to, to destroy UNRWA. And so the fact that it's come up with this evidence and, you know, UNRWA and the United Nations immediately said, look, we'll deal with this. And they did. They sacked those people. And, you know, they're dealing with any other issues that might be happening inside the organisation. But it's happened just after the ICJ finding 
that Israel, there's a possibility of a genocide in Gaza. And so what does Israeli do? It just immediately releases information now, four months into their invasion of uh, Gaza. I mean, they've held on to that information for a long time. So it's strategically released right now. And of course, Australia's jumped. Why should we jump to lies? Well, possibly lies, or even if it's the truth, let the United Nations deal with it. The United Nations is more than capable. For God's sake, the United Nations is us. That is, nations across the world. You know, let the collective will of the world through the United Nations address this issue. And the fact that they're stopping aid to Gaza at a time when people are starving. I mean, people are starving. They're, 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 they're on the edge of famine because they can't get enough humanitarian aid in. And so the West has decided to cut aid, critical aid to UNRWA. Where's their moral courage? Where's their backbone? Norway, Sweden, Ireland, they've all said it's absolutely critical we keep on funding UNRWA. I mean, what's the matter with Australia? I mean, I'm so disappointed and angry that uh, the Australian government has uh, taken this position, this spineless position. There are a lot of people, there are a lot of young people including a lot of young Jewish people and older Jewish people who are on the streets every week calling attention to the war crimes and to the genocidal acts and intent of the Israeli military. And here we have an Australian government who's very soft in its condemnation of Israel and now is happy to jump when the Israeli Defence Force their murderous liars that they are, have come forth with evidence. Leave it to the United Nations to solve. And see, I'm pretty upset. Well, I'll finish by saying congratulations for your prize winning, Helen. It's not a good time, but there's never been a really good time, has there, for the Palestinians. But for the work you've done, mm. congratulations. Oh, thank you very much, Jan. I'm truly humbled by this prize, actually. Yes, I'm truly humbled. And, yeah, I know that um, Olfat will be with me. Thank you. Two wonderful women dedicated to Palestine, Dr Helen McHugh and her friend Olfat Mahud. You've been listening to an interview with Dr Helen McHugh, awarded the 2003-2004 Jerusalem Al-Quds Peace Prize. The award was for 41 years of passionate advocacy and support for Palestine through her work with Union Aid Abroad, AFIDA and the Union Movement. Next to Ken Davis, the International Program Officer with Union Aid Abroad, AFIDA, about the situation in Palestine in the West Bank Gaza and Lebanon. But first, Ken talks a little about the partnership of AFIDA and Palestine. The Union Native Broad AFIDA helped the Palestinian organisation establish itself in 1989 in Jerusalem and the West Bank and then Gaza. 
called Mahan Development Centre. So it's a national, independent, politically non-aligned, secular, uh, progressive organisation that you know, works in particular areas like farming and permaculture, uh, women's rights, vocational training, uh, youth leadership, disability, and so on. We had big funding from the Australian government from 2009 to 2021 for agriculture projects with Marn and other partners in West Bank, in the northern part of the West Bank and in Gaza, particularly in the southern part of Gaza. It's been a strategic partnership for us. And then Marn, of course, receives funding from other international funders. I'd imagine that the only way you can get in touch with them now is... In the West Bank? Yes, in general. You know, we can have all forms of electronic communication, you know, with uh, Maan staff and leadership in the West Bank. Some of the Maan managers from Gaza, by chance, were in, on the 7th of October and 8th of October, were in uh, Cairo in Egypt for training and haven't been able to re-enter Gaza. You know, some of their families have been able to come out and join them. So we can usually talk to them, but uh, Marne in West Bank and Jerusalem is able to maintain some contact with, the, you know, their staff members. They've got around 230 staff members in Gaza. Most of the staff uh, have lost their homes. A couple of the staff have died and, you know, most staff have lost family members. Many of the staff have had to evacuate from the north, from Gaza City to Rafa or Khan Yunus in the south. But... They're able to work in teams uh, coordinated by United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs at a local level. The communications, you know, even prior to October 7, um, you know, Israel has total control of, of Gaza in the sense that Gaza Strip, in the sense that they can turn off the electromagnetic grid at any time. A long while ago, they stopped uh, activities in the port and in the airport. Even the border with Egypt is partly controlled by Israel. The people's uh, IDs are Israeli-issued in Gaza, and so Egypt needs approval from Israel for people to exit. A lot of goods are not allowed, but even prior to the war, if something comes from Israel, you know, people in Gaza need to pay sales tax to Israel for everything they buy, and it's Israeli currency. Israel controls all exit and entry and um, airspace and the sea. So, you know, people say it wasn't occupied, but it's occupied in the sense that Israel maintains control over everything, including water and uh, fuel and electricity. So the situation lately has been much worse, obviously, not just the level of destruction, but the interruption to being able to speak on phones or Wi-Fi has been very constrained. Just the fact, Ken, that over 100 journalists have been killed in Gaza since October. Mm. 117. I don't know what it must be like to be a journalist in Gaza. Well, (laughs) obviously pretty tough. I think Palestinian journalists have had a tough time you know, for a long while from Israel, um, you know, the Christian American uh, Palestinian journalist uh, Shirin Abu Akhla was killed. There's a big history of Israel killing journalists, you know, anywhere in the occupied territories. But also Palestinian Authority in Ramallah and the former de facto Palestinian Authority in Gaza are not in good environments for independent journalists either. And of course, in Gaza, international journalists are not there. So 
international media is reliant on local camera people and local journalists. But 117 of those have been killed, some of them fairly clearly targeted by Israel. 337 health workers killed, 45 civil defence workers, 153 United Nations staff. If people think that what's happening is illegal in international humanitarian war in terms of killing civilians, which you know, I think it fairly obviously is, it's a separate crime to, to bomb United Nations facilities and to kill United Nations workers. Well, it's two months since I last spoke with you, Ken, and I can imagine you're being told stories that are far, far worse than what they were then. Yes, but the communications is is much less. Um, what's happened is the displacement of people is much greater. You know, the vast majority of the population are now out of the out of their homes. The majority of buildings, including housing, have been uh, damaged or destroyed. Um, the availability of water is less. There's still, you know, usually only around 100 or less trucks entering a day. Sometimes, you know, as low as um, you know 50 or so. Whereas in normal times, you know, prior to the war, Gaza's uh, imports would be around 50 trucks a day through both Israel and Egypt. So the aid situation is much worse. The displacement is much worse. I think only one third of the hospitals are partially operating. What was in the shops or what was in stores in terms of, you know, Gaza was a bit self-sufficient in vegetables and in poultry. Certainly rice and stuff was available. That's much, much less. The numbers of people facing um, famine is much greater. Has the, or have the Israelis targeted the small farms that the Gazans used to live on? Yes, to some extent, but, uh, but, but they always do, in, in the sense that the farming areas were in the north, near the border in the north, and in villages near Khan Yunus in the south, and, and on the coast in the south. So usually when there's hostilities, the farms have got are open field or greenhouse. And there's, there's orchards in the sense of like date palms and a little bit of citrus and olives. Usually those farming areas are much more vulnerable, particularly when there's a, a land incursion. And, you know, that's been true in the Khan Yunus area really from the early days. And it doesn't take a lot of damage, you know, from military activity to stop, you know, farm production. And also people are reliant on water. The coastal aquifer is dead. So the water in the soil is generally incursion from the sea, so it's salty. Plus there's agricultural runoff from the Israeli side. You know, more than 95% of the groundwater is unusable. People need to buy water from Israel, from Mekorot Company, or, you know, from Cell, particularly if there's um, small-scale solar-powered Cell. But you can't be having a crop of tomatoes if you don't have the water and if you don't have, um, you know, if, and if the greenhouse has been destroyed. Were the people able to have tanks on the top of their houses? In general, in Gaza, yes. And there was, um, you know, there were attempts a number of times to do um, like rooftop permaculture, uh, like in parts of Egypt. And people had solar. But the problem is during any war, I mean, the war of this scale, obviously, completely devastating of all the built environment. But, you know, in 2008, 2012, 2014, uh, 2018, um, but 2014 in particular, like the level of destruction of water tanks or solar or rooftop gardens is pretty serious. There's a figure of 200,000 yeah. workers. I'm not sure where they are. I'm not sure where they come from, but who are these workers? 
mainly the Palestinian citizens from the West Bank entering you know, across the wall or into settlements daily, uh, most with uh, permits, but day workers on casual, uh, mainly men working in construction or hospitality and some manufacturing. There was 10 to 20,000 at best people able to enter from Gaza. The workers that were in Israel that were from Gaza on October 7, many of them were detained and then deported to West Bank. So there's many hundreds of um, Gazan workers that are now in Jericho, you know, needing assistance and not able to go back to their families. But, but the impact on the Palestinian economy is great. In the West Bank, you've got public sector, you know, nurses and doctors and teachers and police with unreliable wages from the Palestinian Authority because Israel doesn't always do the tax transfers. And there's interruptions of black foreign exchange transfers by the international banks to Palestine. The other big sector is these 200,000 uh, cross-border workers, you know, because they're getting higher wa- day wages in Israel than they would get, you know, in the West Bank. And then you've got like NGO workers and a lot of the NGO funds have been frozen. And you've got a lot of Palestinian workers in private sector, but very small, like small, medium, family run uh, like retail or um, hospitality or uh, farming. With the closures in the West Bank, because people can't move from their village to the city or from between cities in the West Bank, because a lot of the roads are technically area seen under Israeli control and Israel imposes lockdowns. Well, Israel has been imposing lockdowns, you know, extensively, you know, in the last period. And prior to that, there was a lot of Israeli military activity against uh, like Janine or Nablus or Hebron, and that's continuing. My friends in West Bank, and it's not corroborated, but you know, Man in the West Bank is saying around 12,000 Palestinians are in detention without charge. So the rate of arrests has gone right up. But what it means is the West Bank economy has collapsed and, and East Jerusalem because people can't move to get to work or people can't get adequate wages. And therefore, you know, people have got less money to pay in the local markets or less money to pay for goods from Israel with Israeli sales tax. So the local markets are still operating? In West Bank, yeah, and a little bit in Gaza still, yeah. But the problem is if you take the big income out of the labour force in the West Bank, then the ability of households to like pay for, you know, for phone or electricity or water or food is massively decreased. Real economic shutdown in the West Bank and to some extent in Israel because um, around half a million Israelis have left. Israelis with Jewish nationality, I should say. A whole lot of parts of the Israeli economy have shut down. I think a lot of the guest workers, I don't know how many there were, maybe 500,000 have left. And some countries are uh, are saying they won't allow their citizens anymore to take contracts in Israel. And of course, a lot of people are serving in the, you know, reservists are serving in the military. So in particular areas of the Israeli economy too, you know, like the health sector, there's real problems. What's the role now for the PA? That's unknown. I think in general, I mean, what the Americans are saying, I mean, what governments say and what they really mean is obviously not always the same. I think the United States and other Western powers and to some extent the Arab regimes are saying that the Palestinian Authority must be... I don't know what you want to say, reconstructed to be able to manage West Bank and um, and Gaza. So there's a ceasefire tomorrow. The question is who controls, who administers Gaza and who controls reconstruction and who funds it. 
before the funding for reconstruction, so in 2014, was overwhelmingly borne by Qatar. But the level of destruction now is so great. At the moment, the question is emergency aid. But if the, if the bombing or the military invasion stops, it immediately goes into a, a immediate recovery period and then later a reconstruction period. So the question of who runs Gaza, and I guess a lot of the Western assumption is that some sort of reconstructed Palestinian authority does, but the, the credibility or the legitimacy of Abu Mazen and the political leadership in Ramallah is not good, I mean, with Palestinians. You know, in the West Bank, people are okay about the actual administration, about the ministries that actually do things. Like, people want their garbage collected, people want the teachers paid, people want the schools operating, people want the, you know, the hospitals operating. So the, the actual government, in the sense of the administration of each area of government life, people want that, but they don't have any trust in the political leadership which is constructed to serve the security interests of Israel. The Palestinian Security Forces, which is about 37% of the Palestinian government budget, their purpose is never the security of Palestinians. Their purpose is only to defend the Palestinian leadership and the, and the Israelis. They never come in conflict with Israel's security forces. There's a real problem. I mean, it's a big question, what happens to the Palestinian Authority? The alternatives is that Israel directly administers Gaza, which, you know, obviously is not acceptable to Palestinians, but may not be acceptable globally. And morally and in international law, Israel as the occupying power has the responsibility for reconstruction and for the overall health and well-being and education of the population under occupation, which is clearly not happening, is it all going to be back with United Nations Relief and Works, which is the agency for Palestinian refugees? The majority of people in Gaza are registered refugees, you know, from families from 1948. Does it fall to the international community, so-called, or the UN system, and who pays for that? Currently, Australia is paying around $40 million to United Nations agencies in relation to this emergency. What's probably important is what Egypt, the Egyptian government, the Saudi government and the Emirati government are saying at the moment is probably not what they really want. Israel is saying that the dynamic of negotiations between Saudi and Israel will be maintained. So the Saudis and Emiratis want some sort of new international structure that they control, which essentially takes away sovereignty from Palestine and to some extent from Jordan, you know, because Jordan has sovereignty over the holy sites in Jerusalem. A long objective of the Saudis is to replace United Nations Relief and Works with a Saudi-controlled charity for refugees and to be able to install governors or protectors for Palestinian enclaves, you know, that are indirectly under the control of Emirates or Saudi. So longer term, it's not clear what the governments of Egypt and um, Saudi Arabia and Emirates will want, but they're not really dedicated to Palestinian self-determination. So there could be some international structure, but whether the international structure represents any Palestinian self-control over the occupied territories or over the reconstruction of Gaza, we don't know. I guess the other question is, Israel says that it will extend military operations essentially on the border between Egypt and um, Israel. So that Israel has control of the border and Israel may deconstruct the border in order that, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of people cross into Egypt. And that would present Egypt with a you know, fait accompli that the Egyptian population would insist on a, a help 
for the refugees from Gaza, and obviously popular opinion in Egypt is very strongly in favour of the Palestinians. That's why Egypt's saying it won't agree to any ethnic cleansing or any expulsion of Palestinians from Palestinian territory. But if they're presented with the reality of hundreds of thousands or millions of people needing to cross from ill-supplied tents, you know, in the southern part of the Gaza Strip into Egypt or even, you know, as far as Cairo, even though, you know, Egypt's very intensely hostile to the Muslim Brotherhood and to Hamas, as is Saudi Arabia and Emirates. That might be an objective of Israel and it might be realistic, but that would be a historic defeat for Palestinians if Gaza remains in Israeli control and any large segment of the population is moved out of Palestine. How much of what we're seeing now can be sheeted home to the Oslo Agreement? <laughs> That's pretty controversial. Like I'm not Palestinian, so I don't know that I've got it right. But, you know, the Oslo Agreement, part of the Palestinian leadership said, we will establish a Palestinian state on any area of Palestine that is, you know, freed up from Israel. And so initially, as the Soviet Union was <laughs> faltering, you know, they said to the ANC and to the PLO and other allies, you need to, like, negotiate your future. And to some extent, that was more successful in South Africa. So Haider Abdul Shafi from Gaza and uh, Hanan Ashrawi represented the Palestinians in the Madrid peace talks. And then they were undermined by Yasser Arafat's negotiations in Oslo. And then the immediate gain was the establishment of, I don't know what you want to say, beachheads with uh, Yasser Arafat in Gaza and also in Jericho. And then later, you know, the dividing up of the West Bank into Area A, which is Palestinian civilian control, Area B, which is the rural areas around the Palestinian towns, under partial Palestinian control, and Area C, which is 60% of the West Bank, which is under full Israeli control. It was supposed to be a path towards an independent Palestinian state. And to some extent, you know, Australian political parties or party, you know, governments around the world or the Palestinian Authority or PLO is still demanding a Palestinian state on the territories occupied in 1967. And that's reflected in, you know, the ALP debate here about recognition of Palestinian statehood. But there never has been an independent Palestinian state. The enclaves in the West Bank are very much under Israeli control. Now, um, travel between the cities in the West Bank is impossible. The economy is almost totally under Israeli control. And part of the current government is... um, publicly in favour of annexation and expulsion. Despite what Palestinians might have wanted in terms of a version of self-determination with a two-state solution, um, now clearly the Israeli government's against that. You know, it's not a reality. It's not a possibility. We're hearing some minor irritations by the US and some European countries to the, the way that Israel has carried out this war, if you call it a war. But until they stop or pull back on their funding, it it just seems just small talk that gets nowhere. I think it's a contradictory situation. On the one hand, Israel is the only OECD country that's like completely dependent on um, resources from the United States or from from the West. So, you know, it's historic reality is a sort of colonial, (laughs) I don't know what you want to say, project from the West. Not initially from the United States, but now very much from the United States. That's the reality. It's not a state like any other OECD state. If the United States stopped uh, economic and political and military assistance, Israel would not be viable in the short term. 
But I think also the world's changing. Before the Arab Spring, you could say American power over its allies, over Turkey, over Qatar, over Emirates, Bahrain, Egypt, Saudi, Israel, you know, was overwhelming. Now, all of those countries have ruling elites that are operating in what they see as the medium-term interests of, of their elites. Former American allies are operating across purposes, and that creates a level of chaos. Israel is not under the instruction from Washington in the way it might have been previously. But also, I don't think Washington has a, a strategy forward. I think the policy advisors in, in Washington are divided on what they want, as are the, is the elite in Tel Aviv or in Riyadh or in you know, the other countries. All of the rulers are nervous that they won't be in power for very long, for various reasons. I think all of them are scared uh, and in part scared of their own populations. So that creates an enormous instability or um, you know, unpredictability about what different governments will say. Yes, the Biden <laughs> government is, is making statements and essentially trying to tell Netanyahu to behave himself, uh, and that's not working. But at the moment, we've got rhetoric from the governments in the region and outside the region, which is fairly false. You know, it's a different world. If you look at the contest for the Red Sea, you've got the Red Sea countries, you know, Somalia, Djibouti, Ethiopia, Eritrea, Sudan, Jordan, Israel, Saudi, Yemen in conflict. But you also have like China, France, United States, Japan, Emirates, Turkey with um, presence in the Red Sea. So it's not simply an Israel-Palestine question. Uh, as the regional conflict stands, and this may be an objective of Israel to force United States into direct action against Iran, to some extent, that's happened by the United States instructing the you know, Pakistan military to bomb Iran. I don't know that Washington's got like a proper game plan. And also, I don't think Washington entirely controls the American allies. And that's a new situation. And also, the increasing power of other countries, India, China, Russia, is really important. Well, finally, Ken, from what you've said there, does it matter whether Netanyahu stays or goes, and if he does go, what's the prospect for someone decent replacing him? I think prospects are not good, even though there's been a lot of agitation against Netanyahu from essentially trying to defend democracy for Jews in Israel for a long while. And I think there's a lot of anger against Netanyahu. I don't think he's popular. I don't think he can sustain his regime. The far right have overplayed themselves. You know, the organisations that are actually still on the list of terrorist organisations for Australia that are in government. But the left, the Israeli left, I think, has evaporated. And that's not just recently, but that's a process that's been going a long while. Labor only just got elected to the Knesset. Merits, the Israeli left party, lost all seats. The joint Palestinian-Jewish left, Akadash and its alliance, has only got four seats. The Islamic party has got five seats in the Knesset, but there's no real material base for a more progressive side in Israel, even though some people are fairly bravely trying to demonstrate uh, against, you know, the extraordinarily high levels of repression in Israel at the moment. But where would there be a moderate government come from? I mean, I suppose you've got Gantz, you know, in the emergency cabinet. So there could be some attempt to reconstruct a leadership from the Israeli centre, but there's strategic dilemmas. Like Israel needs to defeat Palestinians fairly definitively 
they need to prove their firepower because the attack on October 7 is extremely awkward if your business is um, selling arms and selling security and selling you know that sort of level of military logistics. Israel's needed to prove its destructive capabilities, but what's its real objective in Gaza? It, that's not clear. Does it want to reoccupy? Does it want to expel? Does it want to negotiate with Saudi and Egypt and Emirates about some sort of reconstruction with some sort of controlled regime? It's not clear. Um, I think they're genuine dilemmas for, what do you say, the security establishment in Israel. And of course, as you said, people are leaving Israel. I imagine there's not too many people who want to come now. I, well, I think there's some, you know, really crazy people that feel ideologically driven to come, you know, to complete the conquest of Samaria and Judea. But I think, you know, even prior to the war, you know, a lot of professionals or, you know, well-educated European background Israelis of Jewish nationality were leaving. And that was creating problems, for example, in the medical system. Got, uh, you know, disproportionate number of Palestinian nurses and doctors in Israel. And Ken Davis is the International Project Officer with Unionate Abroad, AFIDA. What's taking place in Palestine is horrendous. The people of Gaza who have survived ethnic cleansing, three wars and a 16-year siege are now facing the biggest attacks ever mounted against them. This will only stop if governments like ours demand that it stop. Here are some ways that you can keep yourself informed and involved. Listen in to Palestine Remembered every Saturday morning at 9.30am or listen to the podcast. Join the APAN mailing list at apan.org.au for updates, news about actions you can get involved in and where you can donate to provide humanitarian assistance. Listen to other news and current affairs programs on 3CR that also cover Palestine. The oppression of the Palestinian people has been going on for 75 years. It has to stop. You can be part of making that happen by staying informed and active. APAN is a proud supporter of 3CR. The law is part of our everyday lives, including when we buy something, use a service, have a job or rent a house. The law can be used to help protect and support families when there is violence in the home or disputes over parenting arrangements. Sometimes we might need to understand the law to navigate specific government systems like Centrelink, getting a residency visa, or if we come into contact with the police. Community legal centres provide free, quality legal advice and assistance to help people with everyday legal problems. We focus on working with people who are experiencing disadvantage, such as financial hardship, family violence, homelessness and discrimination. Community legal centres are independent, non-government organisations and can be found across Victoria and Australia. If you're experiencing a legal problem, your local community legal centre may be able to help. To find a community legal centre near you, visit the Federation of Community Legal Centres Victoria at www.fclc.org.au. A 3CR supporter. CR needs members to survive. By becoming a subscriber, you're helping us to remain fiercely independent and free of commercials and corporate influence. Are you a paid-up subscriber? It's just $40 concession, $80 waged, 
$150 for a band or organisation and $300 solidarity. Great value for 24-7 community-owned and community-controlled media. Please become a subscriber member today. Call the station on 03-9419-8377 or sign up online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Would you like to get involved in the decision-making process at 3CR? Nominations are now open in 3CR's Community Radio Federation elections. You can stand as a subscriber representative and have valuable input into the programming and future direction of this diverse, dynamic and radical radio station. Nominations are due by Wednesday the 14th of February at 5pm. For more information, contact the 3CR station manager on 03 9419 8377 or download the nomination form at the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au forward slash people. Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war, stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack. We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm, State Library, this Sunday. Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. The enormous Pogra open cut and underground mine in a valley in the Enga province of PNG's highlands has reopened after being shut for four years. Mining Watch Canada's coordinator, Catherine Cummins, knew well the area, having visited there many times, supporting the local people. I spoke with Catherine at her home in Ottawa, Canada, at the weekend. Catherine, Barrick, which ran the mine until its licence renewal was refused several years ago, has promised a new beginning as the mine reopens. But the people say they suffered three decades of violence to both themselves and their environment from Barrack, unresolved to this day. I, I think maybe it's worth just taking a step back and looking at what has happened here in the last number of years, because it's really significant. So in 2017, Barrack actually started to try to negotiate a renewal of the lease because the lease was going to expire in August of 2019. So they started to try and negotiate with the Papua New Guinea government to get that lease renewed. And August 2019 came and went and the lease had expired and there was no extension permit granted. And Marape, who was at that point the prime minister, made it really clear that none would be granted, that you've been here for 30 years, we're quite finished with having Barrick run the place and we're going to take this over ourselves. So it was, you know, PNG for the for the Papua New Guineans. So that was really clear. And so then in April of 2020, the mine was put on care and maintenance. But that's when Barrick started taking legal actions as well. And so Barrick filed a number of legal cases in the Papua New Guinea courts. 
And this did lead in May of 2020 to the courts in Papua New Guinea saying that, you know, they ordered a negotiation um, between the government and Barrick, but this did not deliver the desired permit. And then in July of 2020, Barrick filed what they call an ISDS case, which is an investor state dispute settlement mechanism, which only companies can sue governments. Governments cannot sue companies, but companies can sue governments. And Barrick has been using this mechanism in other places where they were not getting permits that they wanted. So for example, in Pakistan. And these cases have become insane. Um, (laughs) Mining companies, Canadian mining companies are using this mechanism over and over again right now, and the amounts that they're actually suing governments for goes in the billions. So if they win these cases, governments will be on the hook for billions, and this happened in Pakistan. So Pakistan fought the case and lost, and most governments are losing. This, is a, this whole mechanism, this court mechanism, was put in place specifically for corporations. So governments cannot sue companies for wrongdoing in this cor- in this mechanism, this ISDS mechanism. Only companies can sue governments. And if the companies win, then the governments owe them billions of dollars. If the governments win, then all they get is their costs back. So this is a really problematic mechanism. And Barrick filed a case in July of 2020 against the Papua New Guinea government for not giving Barrick the license it wanted, right? Now, its license had expired, but it's saying, you owe us a license and we're going to sue you. And that case is still pending, by the way. That is still on the books. So that is like a sort of Damocles hanging over the Papua New Guinea government. And so in in a statement, Marape, Prime Minister Marape, actually said, and I'm quoting, we realize that these court cases could have dragged on for years, so we have reached out for a possible commercial negotiation with Barrick. So essentially Barrick bludgeoned the Papua New Guinea government with this really uh, brutal tool and brought the government to the negotiating table. That happened in April of 2021, then the government, or sorry, in, in, in July of 2020, this case was filed. And then in April of 2021, so it still took another year, the Papua New Guinea government did agree to a new deal in principle. So it took a long time. But even from April 2021, when the Papua New Guinea government in, in principle agreed to a new deal, it still took till December of last year, 2023, before the mine officially reopened. And even then, what's really critical, so, you know, all of this has been contested all the way through. There have been numerous cases filed in Papua New Guinea uh, to try and stop this. There's been arguments about back taxes that hadn't been paid. So even when the mine was reopened, because the CEO of Barrick Bristow has been going around the world telling everyone, their investors and the media, that they would get that mine up and running in 2023. So December 2023, it officially reopened, but it, 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 there's not actually going to be any gold poured until somewhere in the first quarter of 2024. But even then, the landowners never got their compensation agreement. And the 1992 Mining Act actually stipulates that there has to be a compensation agreement with landowners before a mine can reopen. And that had not been accomplished. There's a lot of conflict between Barrick and these landowners. And so what happened was in the 29th of November, 2023, 
an amendment was made to the Mining Act of 1992. And this amendment is called the Mining New Porgra Amendment Act of 2023. And it allows the mine to reopen even without a compensation agreement with the landowner agents in place. And so according to that, they're now going to have two years to keep discussing whether they can get to a a compensation agreement. And in the meantime, there's an, an old 1989 compensation agreement with the landowners, and that's going to be in place. So here we have New Porgra, they're going to call it New Porgra, but they've got an 1989 compensation agreement with the landowners. And this precedent that's been set is really problematic. And a lot of landowners, a lot of different parts of Papua New Guinea are weighing in and saying, you know, is this how we're going to be treated by all foreign investments from now on? Like, you know, they've just lost so much ground through this. So that's a little bit of a run through (laughs) And what is that compensation? So these agreements are because, you know, landowners in Papua New Guinea have a lot of of clout um, and any kind of commercial investment or, or development on their land has to be preceded by a compensation agreement with the landowners that would actually recognize that they are losing land, they are losing value, and that there needs to be compensation. And these agreements can, can have a very wide range. They can be things like schools that the, that the landowners want, or they want um, a certain amount of jobs, or they want economic developments, or they want a hospital. You know, there's a whole range of things that they can put into these compensation agreements. And there were negotiations that were ongoing, but they just didn't reach their agreement. And because this deadline of December 2023 was coming up and Bristow had been telling all of the investors that the mine was going to open in 2023, this amendment was made to the Mining Act. And it really has disempowered the landowners. So even the 1989 agreement, compensation agreement, there's just been so much dispute about how the the promises made in that agreement have never been upheld. So there were all kinds of clauses in that agreement that have just not been lived up to by the mine. So now they've got an old agreement, which which itself is problematic, and they've got two years to come up with a new agreement. Otherwise, a warden is going to go ahead and make a determination on compensation. Really, really problematic and a really bad precedent. So what happens to the claims for environmental damage and the violence that the people have suffered over those years? Yeah. What's happened to that? All of that is is completely unaddressed. In fact, it's really it's really worrying because Bristow, the new CEO of Barrick since 2019, has you know been saying those are legacy issues, and he said they belong to old Porgra, and now we've got new Porgra. So you know you, you can you can read between the lines. You know when you hear him say this in various media outlets, that what he's saying is we're, we've got a legal barrier now we've got a new we've got a new project and those things belong to the old project and so i think i think you know from a from a legal point of view it may be even harder for people to still be able to bring those claims we'll, we'll see well, what guarantees are there that the environment will be protected and the people particularly the women in the area will be protected I think there's no guarantees. First of all, as far as the environment is concerned, there is it's already very, very clear they're going to continue to use the river system to dump their tailings, which is 
unbelievable. I mean, Barrick is a Canadian company. They would not be allowed to do that in Canada. Um, there's very few mines in the world that still use natural river systems to dispose of their mine waste, right? Mines are supposed to build tailings impoundments, and they're supposed to keep those tailings, which are often very toxic, away from surface water and groundwater. And here they're just, they've got a pipe and they just dump it straight into the, the river system up at the mine and that goes into an 800-kilometer-long river all the way down to the ocean. And the Norwegian Pension Fund divested from Barrick over that issue and they are going to continue to stay divested from Barrick because they're going to continue to use the river. Then there's all of the other issues that have not been resolved, like all of the women who've been raped by mine security and police that were acting under a contract for the mine. There's men and boys that have beaten, been beaten and been killed. None of that's been addressed. And people keep bringing it up. It, it, it's, no one is dropping this. Like the, the, the groups that I work with on the ground uh, the grassroots human rights groups and environmental groups keep hammering on this. And during this entire process uh, for, you know, restarting this mine over these many, many years, they've been at all those meetings and they've constantly brought up the rapes and the killings and, you know, the, the environmental issues. People downstream from the mine have got their own organization and have also been raising their voices about the impacts that they feel, even though they get no compensation because they're downstream. All of these things have been raised in the last four years, you know, since 2019 or since April 19, or August 19, sorry, when the lease expired. In all these negotiations, these things have been brought up and they're always brushed to the side. This is always at the bottom of the heap of things that need to be dealt with. And some of these things have also been raised, been raised in these compensation negotiations that have gone on with the with the landowner agents. But again, they, they never got to a compensation agreement. So these so-called legacy issues have also just not been dealt with. And the very, very big concern is that not only have the historical legacy issues not been dealt with, but that this is going to happen again. Right. There's already Bristow has been making all kinds of statements about the need for security arrangements at the mine, that security is a major concern of the company, that they want strong security arrangements. So you can sort of see how this mine is going to be militarized again and that these abuses will will happen again. I That's really foreseeable. You said that the landowners have a, a, an amount of clout. What's their reaction been? It's been very mixed. On the whole, the the landowners that have spoken out have clearly said that that this is wrong, that this amendment shouldn't have been made, that they should have been able to continue negotiating until they actually reached an agreement. There's also a lot of talk about certain landowners having been paid off, but this is talk, right? I can never... These are things that are very, very difficult to to prove, but no, the, the landowners I've been in touch with who are the agents have been saying very clearly that this is very problematic and they they had the power to keep this mine from reopening, right? Because without that, I mean, the 1992 Mining Act is very clear that without a compensation agreement in place with the landowners, the mine cannot reopen. And so they were able to hold the mine up for this long but now with this amendment that's been passed you know through the government 
that power has been taken away from them. And that really weakens their position to negotiate. And uh, particularly because the amendment says that they've got two years to come to an agreement or a warden is going to step in and decide what their compensation agreement should look like. So this has really set a bad precedent, I think, not just for Porgra. I'm also hearing from landowners at other parts of the country looking at this and saying this is really problematic. This could happen to us as well. Are the landowners all men? Yes, they are, the agents. So, and this is, again, somewhat interesting, but when the mine was first started, back in 1990, but you know this agreement was, was negotiated up to 1989, and then the mine opened in 1990. During the years that that agreement was being negotiated, the first one, it was also very difficult. And there was then a decision made, and this was really not, this does not conform with sort of traditional practices in PNG, but it was made in order to, you know, for legalistic reasons by the then proponent for the mine that was Placer Dome, another Canadian company called Placer Dome. And Placer Dome said, look, we can't deal with all these landowners, with all these different landowners, because, you know, there was a huge area where people had to be moved away to get this mine started. And they didn't want to deal with all those people. So they said, we want each of the clans to come up with two agents, what they called agents. And so there are 24 landowner agents. And this is not a traditional system or structure in Papua New Guinea, but it it suited the purposes of the the, the mining company, Placer Dome, to only be dealing with these 24 agents instead of all the individual landowners. So those 24 agents still now have that legal position of negotiating for all the landowners. And it's those 24 agents that did not come to an agreement with Barrick and with, you know, with the mine. You know, that kind of question also puts into question whether that whole arrangement that was made to have these 24 agents is still going to hold. I'm hearing rumors that, you know, individual deals are being made with individual landowners that are not these 24 agents. So there's a real sort of messy situation that's been created around all of this. Well, look at the dividing up of the profits from this mine. I'd imagine they're going to be significant. How much does the government get? How much do the landowners get? And how much does Barrack get? Yeah, so there has been some significant shifts in the ownership uh, arrangements. So whereas before the Barrack had 47% and this Chinese company, Zijin, had also 47%, now the local subsidiary called Barrack New Guinea Limited is going to have 49%. So the two owners of the subsidiary, Barrick and Sejin, are going to have 24.5% each, which is interesting. So Barrick will have a minority shareholding, but they're still going to have, Barrick is still going to be the operator of the mine. So Barrick and Sejin, the Chinese company, will have 24.5% each. The government is going to have 33% ownership in the mine. The provincial government stays at 5%, which they had before. The landowners used to have 5%. They're going to go up to 13%. So this is just the ownership in the mine. And then what's also really unusual, and I don't know how this exactly works, but 
what the company, what Barrick is saying is that the Papua New Guinea stakeholders, so that's the government, 33%, the provincial government, 5%, that's ENGA, the ENGA government, and the landowners, 13%, they will also receive 53%, so it's, that's 51% ownership, but they'll get 53% of the economic benefits of the mine. So how that exactly is going to work, I don't know. There's also, Barrick is also saying that government is guaranteed tax payments. But at the same time, what we're also hearing is that Barrick has been saying, but we spent a lot of money on putting the mine into care and maintenance over all those years. So, you know, all the way from August 2019 when the mine, or sorry, April 2020 when the mine went into care and maintenance, but really from August 2019, the lease was expired until December of 2023, the mine was putting out money to keep keep the operations, you know, keep the mine ready to be reopened. And then what I've been hearing is that there are all these back taxes that were not paid, and this has been a, another real sore point in Papua New Guinea that there that the mine had not been paying its proper share in taxes previously, and that these back taxes will never be paid because. That's the mine is claiming that they spent so much money to keep the to keep the operations on care and maintenance, and so those back taxes are going to be they're going to disappear. They're not going to be claimed anymore. So this is what I'm hearing. There must be a lot of very distressed people in that area at the moment. Very, 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 very much, and particularly you know the the, the small grassroots groups that are really fighting for human rights and for the environment, their only hope was that their claims, their leg, you know, what are called legacy claims for all the human rights abuses that have occurred over many, many years and the environmental impacts, that those would become part of those negotiations that the landowner, the agents would have with the company. And so they were, you know, those groups were, were lobbying those agents to not forget these human rights claims and these environmental claims. And I don't know whether that was what, you know, caused the deal not to go ahead. They never got to an agreement on what that compensation should be. But I know that the legacy issues, the human rights issues, and the environmental issues were all on the table through these groups lobbying their agents and so now these have, these are not going to be addressed. And as I say, there's nothing there's nothing at all to give comfort that these human rights abuses, certainly the environmental issues will continue because the riverine tailings disposal is going to continue. The human rights issues are surely going to become an issue again because the mine is going to get militarized. The, you know, the security arrangements are going to be put back in place. There's going to be military up there. There's going to be police up there. Yeah, it's uh, it's very worrisome. And I'm sure that there's many communities around PNG are very worried that what's in the offering for them in the future. That's absolutely a fact. I mean, I've already seen uh, through PNG media, but also Facebook posts and, and even through LinkedIn, I've seen posts where other parts of the country where there are projects or where there are, you know, international investments that are being planned, whether mines or logging, that are saying, well, wait a minute, you know, is this is this going to happen to us? Like, are we essentially, has, have our rights as landowners to, to come to arrangements with investors, with foreign investors, 
been eroded forever. You know, and this was a really powerful thing. I mean, we talk a lot in, in mining globally around, you know, indigenous rights. Uh, these are indigenous peoples. In the Porgor Valley, these are Ipili and they're Engan, Engan peoples. And we talk about the rights of indigenous peoples to to have a say about whether projects go ahead or not and under what circumstances. And in Papua New Guinea, this has been enshrined in law, which is very rare. So they, you know, these landowners did have a lot of power and that's just been taken away from them. And so this this is worrisome for, for all of the, the landowners, the indigenous landowners in Papua New Guinea. There were riots in Port Moresby and other places in the past months. What was that about? We're told, you know, different stories, but what's the real crux of the story? Yeah. I think, so... The official line from the government is that there was a, a, a clerical, like a, a mechanical error in some payments that were supposed to be made to people, and so people didn't get the payments that they were that they were supposed to get, and this was like a, a technical error or, or a mechanical error, and that that triggered these riots. But really, if you think about it, Papua New Guinea, you know, is is economically the people are struggling. So it's a country. It's it's a classic what they call resource cursed country, where you have foreign investments, logging, fishing. There's LNG projects. There's mines, and there's a lot of money being made on the natural wealth of the country. But you have a population that is, you know, very large youth population that are jobless. They, they don't have jobs. They don't have income. They don't have a future. You know, because I'm working very closely with these groups in Porgra, one of the things that I get asked over and over again is, is there any way that we can get our young people out of Papua New Guinea so that they can get jobs? They want to come to Canada. They want to get jobs. And they, you know, the people I work with who have children say, we see no future for our children. It, it's very, very painful. And and with inflation, you know, that's hit the whole world, it's, inflation has hit Papua New Guinea really hard. So not only do you have a lot of youth in Papua New Guinea that don't have jobs, but they're also now the cost of living has just gone up, and people are very desperate. So I don't think it takes much for people to act out on, on their situation. And what the particular trigger is, uh, it, you know, it could be a clerical error or a mechanical or technical error by the government uh, in payments, or it can be something else. But I think the place is a bit of like a tinderbox from the point of view of, of just the economic desperation of the people. And the impact on groups like Mining Watch Canada, I'd imagine you've been working and co- coordinating with the people for many years. And to have the situation as it is today... You wouldn't never expected, would you, that this it would end up like this? It's super disappointing. It and it really is I'm really channeling what I'm hearing from the groups that we work with. And these are women's groups and, and male led groups, but you know, they're all working together on the human rights and the environmental issues and you know, when the Marapi government said Papua New Guinea for the Papua New Guineans and basically said to Barrick, you know, it's been nice knowing you but it's time to go there was cheering. People were cheering. You know, there were there had been rallies with, you know, signs, Barrack out of Papua New Guinea. And, and this wasn't just in Porgra. Like, this was a national, there was a national pride that came up when Barrack was, was basically shown the door. 
And then, of course, the government backtracked under, you know, the pressure they were put under by Barrick, particularly legally. And that was where the disappointment started. And then, of course, it got to, okay, we're going to negotiate an agreement. And then, you know, there was still hope that because this was a new moment, because the, the, the company could not go ahead, absolutely could not go ahead without coming to an agreement with the landowners, this was an opening and an opportunity for finally these human rights, these really egregious human rights issues to be dealt with through this, this compensation agreement that had to be hammered out between the company and the landowners. And now even that's been taken away. So it's like the company can go ahead, can mine again, can make, make a lot of money, and can just basically ignore the fact that these legacy issues, these human rights issues, and this environmental impact has never been dealt with and is likely to continue going forward. So this is a really low moment for people who've been fighting, you know, for justice against this, this project and against this mine. And you think how the environment and the the morale of the people is going to go downhill from now on? It's very low right now. I, I must say it's it's about as low as it can get. Particularly, you know, I mean, there's when you talk about landowners, there's really different classes of landowners, right? So the people I work with, the grassroots groups, they are landowners, but they're what they call they call themselves small landowners. But then you have the more powerful landowners, which were these 24 agents, right? And they have been given this power, you know, through this structure that was created to allow the mine to open in the first place. And so the small landowners, the human rights groups, were lobbying the more powerful landowners. And it was the powerful landowners that actually had the power to stop this mine from opening until they got a compensation agreement that had everything in it that they wanted, and now they've been disempowered by this legislation. So the groups that I work with are saying, well, if the, if, if the, if the powerful landowners have now been brushed aside, how are we ever going to get our voices heard? So, yeah, I have to say things are at a real low right now, and that will have repercussions. You can't really operate a mine. You know, they talk about a social license to operate right now, there is zero social license to operate. And Bristow has is been in the media in Canada, Financial Post here in Canada, talking about the need to have a social license and that Porgra is a particular case where they've had problems with a social license. Well, right now, they don't have a social license at all. And it's questionable whether they're going to be able to get it unless they actually come to the table and, and hammer out a compensation agreement that deals with all of the issues that need to be dealt with. And we'll see. I guess they have two years to do it. But in the meantime, they're up and running and mining, right? So what is their motivation for really coming up with a good agreement? They've basically got their permit to mine now. So that's really a problem. Thank you so much for your work, Catherine. And I'd imagine it's a hard time for you now, but the companionship and the the friendships that you've made with the people there in their struggle oh absolutely and they're wonderful people and we're not you know we're not going to just say okay well that's it now we're going to walk away from this situation no i mean we're obviously going to continue to push and there are other ways to do that and there's things we can do in canada we're, we're not going to just walk away from this absolutely not thank you so much thank you jen
And many thanks to Catherine Coomins from Morning Watch Canada. Creating space for women and gender-diverse people to thrive, the Queen Victoria Women's Centre is now taking applications for their inaugural Feminist Historian-in-Residence. Over 12 months, revisit their historical records to uncover fresh stories and perspectives. The centre encourages proposals that challenge their history from an intersectional viewpoint and grapple with the complexities of colonisation. To apply, head to qvwc.org.au, closing Friday, February 16th. Queen Victoria Women's Centre is a 3CR supporter. It's like we're going through life with one eye shut and one eye open, and we're only getting half the picture. And then somebody like me comes in and says, well, let's make sure we see the full picture. Finding the Money, an exciting new documentary, takes us inside the debate between economists who say we can afford to deal with inequality and the climate crisis, and the economists who say we can't afford it. An unconventional economic theory is gaining some traction. Modern Monetary Theory, MMT. And one of its leading proponents is Professor Stephanie Kelton. Finding the Money, coming to Melbourne for limited screenings in March 2024. Finding the Money, on tour with renowned economist Stephanie Kelton and independent filmmaker Marin Poitras. Tickets on sale now via modernmoneylab.org.au. The true story of money is not the story that I've been told. Finding the Money, a pivotal documentary for our time, a 3CR supporter. FreeCR is Radical Radio. Through our on-air content and community structure, we promote real change for workers' rights, gender equality, environmental action, disability justice, and on racism and First Nations sovereignty. Do you want to be part of real radical change? We need you to subscribe. It's just $40 concession, $80 waged, $150 for a band or organisation, and $300 solidarity. Call 03-9419-8377. That's 9419-8377. Or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. of this year's National Sustainability Festival and join ABC Gardening Australia's Costa Georgiadis for a huge afternoon of sustainability at the Great Local Picnic featuring a terrific lineup of sustainability innovators. Bring your picnic rug with your homegrown harvests or pack a locally sourced spread to the Royal Botanic Gardens, Melbourne for a celebration of local food, sustainability and community connection. Full program online, sustainabilityfestival.au. The National Sustainability Festival is a 3CR supporter.
women in community radio come along to the NEMBC Multicultural Women's Forum a seat at the table where we can meet online and network share experiences and learn new skills this forum is being held in adelaide in a hybrid format so you can join in online as well if you're from a multicultural background and involved in radio or interested in radio broadcasting then this forum is for you let us meet on saturday 10th of february 2024 for a day of interesting talks training sessions and fun activities please register at admin@nembc.org.au a link will be sent to you closer to the date if you need more information please send an email or visit our facebook page women broadcasters a 3cr supporter today we focus on bougainville where the people are not so patiently awaiting independence from PNG after voting over 97% in 2019 for this to occur long-time advocate for Broganville is Vicky John and I spoke to Vicky about a number of issues but first a young Broganville Taylai Havini has won the Arts Mundi prize one of the UK's most important arts awards. Vicky, tell us about Talloway. You know her quite well. That's correct. Talloway is a very um impressive artist and, and a very likable girl. Well, she's grown up now, so she's a woman. Um most happy to report that young Talloway won one of the most prestigious prizes in art for contemporary artists known as the Artes Monday prize and she actually collected um 40,000 pounds as prize money it's a lot of money and I'm so happy for her it was held in Wales and as Talloway quoted she said um it means a lot to me that my people's indigenous ancestral stories have had a presence in Wales my hope that the Welsh and wider audience can find some connection to the histories of extraction and the ongoing struggle for cultural environmental and political self-determination that I speak to in Bougainville. So her artwork is based on her life in Bougainville. The jury actually said because it was a jury that actually picked the prize winner, the jury were impressed by all the you know the depth and the sophistication of all the seven international artists and Talloway won um what they said was in selecting um Talloway as the winner the jury were struck by the integrity of her work which is exceptional in its research deployment of indigenous knowledge ethics of um rationality and the rigor that she expressed in her work her installations are both moving and visually stunning. Talloway's work transforms our understanding of human domination over our natural world to the position of living otherwise as communal with respect for our non-human relations and non-extractive economy. You would have known her as she was growing up, is that correct? Yes. with the Bougainville Freedom Movement we used to often have our meetings at um her mum and dad's house sadly her dad has passed away Moses Havini her mum Marilyn is still surviving and lives in Bougainville i must um say Marilyn was also an art teacher she's a retired art teacher and Marilyn also designed the Bougainville flag so 
Tell always had a lot of wonderful support, you know, with the mum and dad to win such a wonderful prize. You know, this accolade was the finest, one of the finest prizes you could ever win, really, as an artist. But as you said, it just opens up to people the reality of what was Bougainville and what is Bougainville today. Yes, that's exactly it. I haven't seen all of Talloway's work. I know that the exhibition is on in Wales um, right through to the 25th of February, but sadly I can't get there. It shows, from my understanding, yes, all her, you know, the Indigenous ancestral stories that she's experienced. Talloway often goes to visit her mum in Bougainville and um, gains, you know, further knowledge because she's now based in Brisbane, living here in Australia was torn as a child because the family had to leave Bougainville because of the war that broke out on in Bougainville. Part of her life has been here in Australia, as well as now being in Bougainville when she goes to see her mum. But surely that installation will come to Australia? I'm assuming it will, yes. I'm, I'm really not sure of the next step there, but maybe it will, and if it does, I'm definitely going to go. Now, the long-drawn-out process for independence continues. In the meantime, Bougainville government wants to change the region's Mining Act. What problem do they see with the Act as it stands? Well, there was lots of controversy when it first came out in 2015 under the John Momus government. The positive side was that the, the Mining Act of 2015 gave the landowners control of their minerals which meant that anything mined six inches below the surface of their land remained theirs, which was highly celebrated by the John Momus government at the time, but has faced um, massive criticism ever since it was passed. Advocacy group um, Jubilee Australia had said way back in 2015 that the Mining Act gave with one hand and took away from the other. Apparently there's been later attempts to try and change the... um, the Act and through protests and from both the landowners and potential foreign investors who are eyeing off you know, the reopening of the um, long-closed but potentially very profitable Panguna mine. Current changes from my understanding is that the current president, President Ishmael Torarama, has said that um, there's a necessity to change the Act because the Bougainville government will government will become the majority owner of the Bougainville Copper Limited Shares. That was the company that operated the Panguna mine. So just on that note, it was way back in 2000 and... When was it? 2016, Rio Tinto left. That's the, the major mining company. And the Bougainville Copper Limited was operating the mines. At the time when Rio Tinto decided to up and leave Bougainville, they gave their shares half to the Papua New Guinea government and half to the Bougainville government. So that meant that there was 36.4% shares, BCL shares for Bougainville and 36.4% shares shares for Papua New Guinea. I think it was when current Prime Minister of um, Papua New Guinea, James Marape, came into power, he said he would, the, he said that the PNG government would give their shares, the BCL shares, to Bougainville. That still hasn't happened. So with this Mining Act, 
and the changes they wish to make, I'm not sure why they're making these changes without even resolving that matter. Well, where's the push coming from? Well, it seems like at this stage, coming from the current Bougainville government under Ishmael Tororama, he's saying that because of, you know, he wants to see the royalty levies raised, it's because of all the global standards what's happening now, like inflation and so on, the Act has to change to represent those changes. So there was that aspect. He said also that there'd be no changes to the provisions on the landowner rights to the minerals on their land, and there were no plans to replace landowner consent with government consent. I'm really not sure why at this stage, and again, it's my opinion, why he's pushing for these changes when nothing is resolved about those um, Bougainville Copper Limited shares. Seems to me, Vicky, this is tied up with um, plans to reopen Panguna Mine. Just to remind people of the devastation of that period when Rio Tinto had that mine, and I'd like to bring in a little trip to London by yourself and other people who went to their headquarters in London. A very memorable moment. I became an activist for Bougainville way back in 1993 and have been active ever since for Bougainville. I was disgusted with a documentary that I viewed called My Valley is Changing, which which was a propaganda film put out by the mining company. And I was just appalled and my reaction was, what about the people that live there? That's where it all started for me, seeing that video. And then it's just so so amazing, really. I was on a, a protest in the middle of the South Australian desert, protesting against the US spy base at Narunga, but in support of Aboriginal land rights. That is where I met the late Moses Havini, who was walking around, you know, introducing himself And I shook his hand and I said, hello, Moses, and where are you from? And he said, Bougainville. And of course, it was like a lightning bolt for me. And I told him about that horrendous documentary that I'd seen, propaganda film that I'd seen that was put out by the mining company. My Valley is Changing. So from that point on, we actually formed the Bougainville Freedom Movement back in 1993 and never stopped working with Moses and Marilyn to find a way to stop the war was our major, major issue, to stop the war on Bougainville, which had killed around 20,000, approximately 20,000 people using our taxes. Our, you know, We supplied the Papua New Guinea government with helicopters, Iroquois helicopters, ammunition. There was a blockade on the island, so no one could go in or out, so no medicines, no journalists. Some people managed to, be, you know, to get through the blockade without getting shot. I'd always wanted to go to Bougainville, but I was too scared to go. So I ended up going to the Solomon Islands, which is right next door to Bougainville, interviewing refugees from Bougainville who, you know, managed to escape Bougainville by banana boat. They call them banana boats to make it to the closest point of call. And I ended up um, going to um, Solomon Islands to. Um, interview the Bougainville refugees and I took a tape recorder with me and art paper and pencils and asked the refugees from Bougainville if they could, you know, draw pictures for me to explain what it was like for them when they were on Bougainville. 
very, very moved by the drawings that they, you know, had drawn. The sadness, it was heartbreaking, terribly heartbreaking. Of course, majority of them said it was all because of the mine and Australia and the horrendous war that they were tolerating. Then after that, I was even more, shall we say, fired up. A friend of mine was living in um, London at the time, and I said, why don't we do something at the um, Rio Tinto headquarters? They're the ones that, you know, created all this mess and the sadness for Bougainville. Let's try and, you know, do something there. So that's what we did. I volunteered and bought the um, red paint and had numerous activists with us. And the idea was that we collected, you know, milkshake containers, you know, that you, I never go to McDonald's, but, you know, those containers that they put milkshakes in or those icy drinks or whatever. So we all had our containers in our hand. I was just getting led like a sheep, really, because I didn't know where I was in London. So we just all massed on mass together, just jumped on this train and ended up, you know, near the, at the station closest to the Rio Tinto headquarters. And then we just ran and ran inside with the paint, continued to throw the paint on the walls of their beautiful reception area. The reason we did that was because the red paint represented the red blood of the Bougainville people. Whilst that might sound a bit too radical, for me, it was one of those protests that were, you know, is very at the forefront of my brain because Rio Tinto really had, had created horrendous war and killing and murder and mayhem on Bougainville. And what were the outcomes or consequences of this little action? Two people got arrested. They were arrested and locked up, but they, there were no charges laid. And from my understanding, the reason was because they didn't want the story out. They wanted to keep the story under wraps. And did someone get it to the media? Yes, apparently. Um, I know that the MUA at the time, it's such a long time ago, but the MUA at the time definitely put something out because uh, they were very on side with the Bougainville cause. I know that went out. So I'm still in London at this point, And I do believe it did get through to the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age. Well done. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> we're now into 2024. The vote for independence was how many years ago? 2019. Right, we're up to nearly five years ago. Are they any closer to getting independence? The Prime Minister of Papua New Guinea, James Marape, and the President of Bougainville, Ishmael Torama, have agreed to convene a joint supervisory body meeting early this year in Bougainville. It hasn't happened yet. We're up to February. There are matters of the ratification because... Even like the, there was an outstanding win for the Bougainville people, you know, 97.7%. So let's say 98% of the people on Bougainville voted for independence in that referendum. That's a massive outcome. But it was a non-binding referendum in the sense that Papua New Guinea government had to, has to ratify the outcome of the referendum. That hasn't been done yet. So as you said... 2019, here we are, to 24. So they are finally going back to the drawing board, back to the uh, table, to having a meeting, because that 
all stopped because of argument and disagreement. So back to going to meet each other again, PNG and Bougainville. President of Bougainville also expressed to um, the Prime Minister of Papua New Guinea uh, that he um, wants the funding that Papua New Guinea is giving Bougainville to be you know, constitutionally guaranteed as well. The thing is, money for um, restoration and development grants, or the funding rather, of the um, restoration and development grant, the amount of one million kina was allocated for Bougainville that was back in 2023, last year, and the Bougainville government got 28 million. Now that's a massive difference. You know, they're expecting 100 million, they received 28 million. That is disgusting. So, you know, where is this money going? The the, the money that you know should be going to Bougainville, it all has to be addressed. So that's something that will be addressed at the next meeting that they have in Bougainville. I'd imagine that a a great number of people on, on Bougainville are, are getting very upset about the long delay. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, how long... This is outrageous. Like, we thought it was all going to go through the PNG government last year, 2023, to, you know, to get this ratified, and it hadn't. It came to a stalemate. It must be terribly hard for, for the people of Bougainville. I mean, I know how frustrating it is for me, and I'm... You know, I'm just one single person who's got a heart for Bougainville. It must be terrible for them, wondering what on earth going, you know, what is going on. And I think there's, um, or sadly, there's some doubt with the current government. You know, maybe they're not doing enough or, you know, things like that. But I, I don't see it that way, really. I see it more so on the side of the PNG government. They're doing everything to uh, stall this. They're doing everything in their power to not let Bougainville go like Bougainville wants to go. Let her go. Trouble is she's got too much, there's too much money involved, isn't there, when you think of the mining rights that they could get if it stays with PNG. But surely PNG's got enough mines. Why do they want another one? Well, that's exactly it. And this question of mining, too, is still a massive issue on Bougainville as well. It's um, something that, you know, I know there's a a split between the people, the pro-mining and the anti-mining. You know, that's still there simmering there. Well, there's a lot of people that don't want this mine reopened. They they have the history. But President um, Ishmael Tororama says, Something like, uh, well, you know, the Panguna mine in Bougainville actually got PNG her independence. So we want the mine to reopen again so we can have our independence. So it's a, like on economical grounds. But if they don't give the shares over, I, I, don't, I really don't see, again, I'm not a Bougainvillian, but I don't see a fair situation happening if, if the mine opens, it may take a long, long time uh, without the BCL shares because it looks like Bougainville Copper Limited do want to re-operate uh, that mine again. Um, if they don't get those shares, I don't see the point for Bougainville. Well, it looks as though we're going to have to talk about this again in the future. I think so, Jan. And that was Vicky John working for Bougainville since 1993. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. 
For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.